I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the, the sirens. sirens. Today we are talking about Adam's Rib, the 1949 romantic comedy directed by George Cooper, written by Ruth Gordon and Garson Cannon, and starring Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn. The plot focuses on initially happily married lawyers Adam and Amanda Bonner, who find themselves on opposite sides in the courtroom after Doris Attinger is charged with the attempted murder of her philandering husband Warren. For Adam, an assistant district attorney, is a straightforward case. The facts aren't in dispute, and Doris shot her husband after she caught him with his mistress. Amanda, on the other hand, takes a different view, arguing that women are treated differently than men regarding adultery and in the courts, and that Doris should be set free. Amanda and Adam do their best to keep their courtroom battles in the court and not at home, but it eventually leads to a raucous family situation and a near split for them. Does that about sum it up, Hill? That does about sum it up. (laughs) (laughs) I have some trivia if you'd like to hear. I would love to hear some trivia about this movie. So I found this very interesting. The story was inspired by a real-life husband and wife lawyer team, William Dwight Whitney and Dorothy Whitney, who represented Raymond Massey and his ex-wife, Adrian Allen, in their divorce. And after the divorce was over, the Whitneys then divorced each other and married their respective Masseys. What? (laughs) Yeah, which is not how this plot goes. This is something I noticed and took note of right away. When Tom Yule is walking to his mistress's apartment at the beginning of the film, he's whistling, You Are My Lucky Star, which is a song from the later movie, Singing in the Rain. (laughs) Singing in the Rain stars the same actress who plays uh, the mistress, Jean Hagen. Oh. The whole, like, licorice pistol thing, Mm -hmm. I, I thought seemed far-fetched but apparently they were really popular candy at the time these were made licorice pistols yeah (laughs) seems problematic but yes i mean i guess it's not that different from candy cigarettes or something else that children probably shouldn't have Mm -hmm. but the it was weird for the movie that there was one that was big enough that it was like a life-size gun. They were usually smaller than that. I was surprised by this. The production code's chief concerns with this movie were that the judicial system be treated with proper respect. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. And um, nothing should be done to make the adulterous relationship funny, which it wasn't. I mean, they played that straight. But they, they also cautioned against making... Um, Kip, the character Kip, come across as gay. And I want to talk about that because I found his sexuality very confusing. I was going to say, he seemed very gay at the beginning and then, like, they were trying to correct for that at the end. Yeah, I didn't... We're going to have to talk about that. But I was just surprised. I was like, of all the things that the code could be upset about, they're upset about the law... But, like, there are massage scenes, there's, like, people slapping each other's butts, there's, a like, a lot gun. of, there's a licorice gun, there's a lot of, like, implied sex happening. So, I I mean, not that I have a problem with any of those things, but I was just, like, I expected the code people to care about them. <laughs> we may not agree, but we have certain expectations. Um, I thought this was super interesting. The script called for Kip to write a song about his devotion to Amanda, and Garson Cannon wrote a song, 
but nobody liked it. And he dared Catherine Hepburn to find a better song, so she asked Cole Porter to do it. <laughs> At the time, her character's name was Madeline. Uh-huh. But Porter turned her down saying like no one can write a song about a woman named Madeline <laughs> but then he suggested changing her name to Amanda and within a week he presented them with a new song Farewell Amanda which was a reworking of So Long Samoa a song he had written in 1940 but never used huh he didn't charge MGM for making the song he just asked that they make a big donation to the Red Cross Aww. But it's it's funny because I thought that song was su- super catchy. It's been stuck in my head since I watched the movie a couple days ago. Uh-huh. It was out of my head and then you mentioned it. Now there it is again. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love Cole Porter and it does have that vibe to it. <laughs> so you might get into some of the stuff about Judy Holiday in a minute. But uh, Catherine Hepburn, George Cooker, and Garson Cannon turned her performance in this movie to like basically a screen test for born yesterday, which came out in 1950 mm-hmm. and she had originated the stage role for that. Mm-hmm. There was one long scene in this movie where Doris recounts how and why she shot her husband mm-hmm. and she has the monologue and they shot her close up in one take. And then Hepburn refused to shoot more than a few brief reaction shots forcing Cougar to just focus on her, even though she was new and, like, she was not considered a star at that time, like, mm-hmm. as far as movies go. Mm-hmm. But the scene convinced Cone to test Holiday, and after three tests, when she borrowed a gown from Hepburn for one of them, he finally cast her over other stars like Rita Hayworth and Marilyn Monroe. And Hepburn later said when people asked, like, why did you help her? She just said, it's the kind of thing you do because people have done it for you. Aw. I know. As I if like we that. couldn't like her anymore. <laughs> um, also, one of my first notes when I was watching this was that Spencer Tracy got top billing. Mm. And I read that he insisted on it, and when the producer asked if he had heard of Ladies First, Tracy responded, this is a movie, not an effing lifeboat. (laughs) (laughs) So, take from that what you will. Sure. (laughs) Um, Do you want to tell us a little bit about Judy Holliday? Yes, I would love to talk a little bit about Judy Holliday. So... She was born Judith Tuvim in New York City on June 21st, 1921. Her father eventually served as the executive director of the Foundation for the Jewish National Fund of America. Um, She grew up in Sunnyside, Queens, and graduated from Julia Richmond High School in Manhattan. Her very first job was as an assistant switchboard operator at the Mercury Theater, which was um, administered at, at that time by Orson Welles and John Houseman. She began her show business career in 1938 under her original name, part of a nightclub act called The Reviewers, which ended up playing a a role in her life later on. Her first film role was small, but uh, noticeable in the 20th Century Fox film version of the U.S. Army Air Force's play Winged Victory in 1944. She made her Broadway debut, debut in uh, March 1945 in Kiss Them For Me and one of and she was one of the recipients that year of the Clarence Derwent Award, um, which foreshadowed that she she was a very talented actor who received a lot of accolades. Um, in 1946, she went back to Broadway and played the scatterbrained Billy Dawn in Born Yesterday as 
the role that you talked about earlier. And she, in, for that role, she received rave reviews. And then she appeared in the film version, for which she won the first Golden Globe Award for Best Actress in a Motion Picture Musical or Comedy. And then the 23rd Academy Award, she won the Best Actress Award, defeating Gloria Swanson, Eleanor Parker, and Betty Davis and Ann Baxter, for who were nominated for All About Eve. She appeared opposite Jack Lemmon in his two first feature films, the comedies It Should Happen to You and Pfft in 1954. I don't know what the actual like pronunciation of that last one movie is. <laughs> um, <laughs> Director George Cukor said that Judy Holliday had, quote, that depth of emotion, that unexpectedly touching emotion, that thing which would unexpectedly touch your heart, which like sounds meaningless, but I think is actually fairly accurate. Um, in 1950, she appeared on the list of 151 pro-communist artists in the conservative pu publication Red Channels, the report of communist influence in radio and TV. Side note, she was a Democrat. Um, she, <laughs> she was subpoenaed by the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee. Eventually, um, she had to um, testify before the Senate, and she was coached by her um, legal counsel to be like embody the ditzy Billy Dawn that she played in Born Yesterday and it worked. Whoa. <clears throat> yeah. That is so cool. I know. She um in 1948 she had married clarinetist D David Oppenheim. Um they had one child together <clears throat> and then divorced in 1958. Um she returned to Broadway to star in the musical Bells Are Ringing with book and lyrics by her friends from the reviewers, her first show business group. And uh, she, in 1957, she won the Tony Award for Best Leading Actress in a Musical for that role. Um, and then she returned to her film career after a gap of several years, starring in the film version of The Bells Are Ringing in 1960, which turned out to be her last film. In October 1960, she started uh, in an out of in out of town tryouts on the play Lorette, which was based on the life of Lorette Taylor. At that time, she had surgery for a throat tumor and ended up having to leave the production. Her very last role was in the stage musical Hotspot, which closed after 43 performances in 1963. She had uh, struggled with breast cancer, and it recurred, and she ended up dying of breast cancer on June 7th, 1965, just a few weeks before her 44th birthday. Wow, so, very... that's so sad that she died that young. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought, I mean, considering that she was not a big film star at this time, she really stole the screen mm -hmm. at certain moments mm -hmm. against these other big stars, and I thought added a lot of nuance to her character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and really held her own against these others. Yeah, and I noticed in some of the... Like, she did a lot of, like, a ton of dialogue in, like, single takes mm -hmm. in, at different points in the film that I was like, wow, that would never happen now, and that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, so I really want to hear your impressions of this movie and um, what your history with it is. I think I have seen it one other time, you know, probably 15 years ago. There were parts of it that I uh, remembered, like the licorice scene, um... And I think some of the scenes in the courtroom, but I mostly like didn't remember a lot of it. There is obviously the quote from one of the courtroom scenes, one of the very first courtroom scenes where um, Amanda is grilling the jurors, and that um, that quote is 
you know, the closeout of this podcast. So I, I am very familiar with that quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the people who watched along, you will recognize that. <laughs> yeah, so I don't have that much of a of a history with it. What about you? Mine is very similar. I watched it once a long time ago. I didn't remember a lot of details about it. In fact, I think I had this confused in my mind with another classic movie where there's a legal divorce case happening that has like a very different ending. So I was actually kind of surprised (laughs) by what happened. I mean, for me, this falls into sort of the classic Hepburn Tracy romantic comedies where the tension is really around gender dynamics. Yeah. It's fascinating to watch and the chemistry is really there, but they don't really come to like a conclusion at the end. Like it feels... There's a bunch of their movies, like, they did nine movies together. And actually, like, Desks that I thought was was kind of an outlier for that. Mm-hmm. But a bunch of their movies, they're dealing with this, like, how can you have a strong woman who is a career person and independent and have her be in a good relationship without emasculating the man? That's, like, kind of what they're talking about mm-hmm. a lot in these movies. Mm-hmm. And they don't really answer that. <laughs> So yeah, I mean that sort of jumps to uh you know the the question that I was asking myself but at the by the end of this movie you know Amanda Bonner is like making this argument in the courtroom that like women should be treated as equal before the law, they deserve equal treatment with with men and she like gives examples of how you know men and women are treated differently and there's different expectations for women than there are for men. But I don't actually think that this movie and, like, the script actually, like, buys into equal rights for women. Like, I think, you know, she's allowed to, like, spoiler alert, she wins the case, but, you know, she loses her husband, almost. And in order to, like, you know, get back together with her husband, she basically has to, like say, yes, it's never correct or never okay for anyone to, like, attempt to kill somebody. And she has to, like, basically, like, give in and, like, submit to her husband. And, like, you know, when when he's, like, crying, she, like, basically is like, oh, yes, anything you want, I, you know, we'll go to the house in Connecticut and make up. And so I don't really believe that this movie takes the position that women actually deserve equal rights. I don't know if you disagree with me on that. Uh, The way that I saw it was Catherine Hepburn was making the right argument, but in the wrong legal case. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if that makes sense, because Uh it was like, I thought that, you know, Doris was a very sympathetic character, but it's true that, like, at the end of the day, she shot her husband, and she, like, admitted, you know, she was like, yeah, I shot him. <laughs> like, this, I, like, I had a hard time, in, in the larger picture, agreeing that she should have just been considered totally not guilty for that. Mm-hmm. But I thought that Catherine Hepburn was right to be making this larger argument that women are treated differently in society and before the law. But, and I just thought she needed like a better case to demonstrate that. (laughs) But do you think that the movie, like the way that it like portrayed the actors, they're not the actors, the, the lawyers 
like in their relationship together and in their like like in the world of the movie do you think the movie was saying like yes women should be equal amanda should have as many rights and privileges as adam i think it no, was like she can win for the case but like she's gonna have to like she's gonna lose the movie basically yeah i mean i think they were kind of making it's sort of similar to something that betty davis says in all about eve is just like that to have a successful career you have to give up a lot mm-hmm. and i think the movie was saying that she almost had to sacrifice her marriage to win that case mm-hmm. and the dynamics were interesting and i think this is the way like in a lot of their movies too that in the end there's a subtle sort of argument that like you can be a really strong woman but at the end in the end at the end of the day you still sort of want to be dominated by a man mm-hmm. which i think is like Something some people still believe. Yep. <laughs> but it was interesting because in... So I, I watched this with Mike and I really didn't remember it very well. And as we were watching it, for like the first two thirds of the movie, I, I turned to Mike and I was like, this is like a really good movie. And I didn't like... Like, the last third. (laughs) But for the first two thirds, I was like, this is a near-perfect movie. Their chemistry is great. The repartee is great. They're talking about interesting things. I'm interested in, like, the side characters as well. It's funny. So I liked it a lot, but this is just something that comes up in a lot of their movies that it's... In in the first part of the movie, actually, she, like, pushes him a lot. And actually... I I was... in the beginning, more sympathetic to him because I was like, all right, he's the assistant district attorney. He's like charged with winning. That's an elected office. (laughs) And she's really making a fool of him in public. Mm -hmm. And I do think it would be hard for a marriage to sustain that because Mm -hmm. it would hurt his career. Like in the, in the end of the movie, when they're saying, Oh, we, we've, selected you to run for this other bigger office i was like is that really what would happen right now right after he lost this case in like a very humiliating way i mean i feel like it would because he's a like successful white man otherwise he's not gonna be as hurt by losing a case as she would be i guess that's true but i just like i was imagining his opponent coming out and being like dude you couldn't even win a case against your wife well now his opponent's gonna be his going to be his wife so yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah i mean it the last third did turn me off a lot and especially the fact that he put i mean like i understand it was a licorice gun and everything but for him to put her through that yeah. i thought was like without having a lot of physical violence it felt very violent to me and horrible like a horrible thing to do yeah yeah, you just and can't, I like, have... like, I can't imagine doing that, threatening anyone with a fake gun. I mean, that's... Would you say that crosses a line, Hill? I would say that crosses a line. <laughs> <laughs> but can we talk, so, like, discount the final third of the film. Can we talk about, like, their actual, like, chemistry and the way the relationship functions earlier in the movie? Because I actually like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love that they call each other pinky and she's ie and he's why i love that no i love it and then he like bought her a hat yeah kind of just because that he like he was like oh i bought the most perfect hat for the most perfect head okay (laughs) they just seem to have a very um like fiery relationship that was 
very alive and like mm-hmm. sexual and like they called each other like he called her during the day just to be like hey i was thinking about you yeah yeah and even though like, they have like they have separate beds but they're like they're facing each other which like i don't know that i've seen any other movie that does that and it to me says like oh they're in conversation with each other that earlier depiction of the marriage to me was really interesting and seemed like an example of like oh this is this couple both has amazing chemistry and they're an intellectual match for each other Mm -hmm. and they genuinely like each other a lot Mm -hmm. and I liked seeing that and then of course that broke down over the course of the film but um I loved all the like parts where they were dropping their pencils and yes like making faces at each other under the table in court. Mm-hmm. I know. Well, and then later he's like, "Oh, you, you like, you, you basically made a mockery of um, the legal system." I'm like, who, who dropped the pencil on the floor first? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that anything she did in court was really. It was. It was um, unorthodox, but it wasn't just a distraction it was actually supporting her argument yeah well and half the well not, i don't know if half the time but like i f- i feel like you know so much of the time you know the arguments people make about making court aren't necessarily about the actual facts of their case they're like they're like saying like here's a, a part of the case and like that isn't that doesn't jive with our the way that we believe our legal system should run. And there's this, like, one detail that negates the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, she was trying to make an argument that was bigger than just the case. I mean, and the fact that she won probably set a precedent for other similar cases. I did think that (laughs) it was interesting the way that they showed the both Doris and her husband kind of being flawed. They basically, like, beat each other up. Yeah. Because I, I thought they would just make her be more sympathetic. And it's like, well, he is, like, verbally and physically abusive to her. But then he was like, yeah, she, like, beats me up while I'm asleep. <laughs> I was like, okay, well. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how, um, but how about, like, at the end when, you know, she wins the case and then the, the like, the reporters are, like, shoving together, you know, the editors and their children and the mistress, and they're like, oh, we want to take a picture of all of you together. I mean, it's, like, it made my skin crawl. I know. Uh, and that was totally the kind of thing that still happens with these celebrity cases. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, like, she wins in court, just like Amanda, but, like, she hasn't won in real life. She still has to deal with you know, her husband and his mistress and, you know, having to deal with the fact that, like, he's an asshole and hits her and, you know, she's a housewife, so she doesn't have any power. It reminded me of other movies we've watched, too, where, I mean, maybe it was more common at this time than it is now for the husband to just, like, have a mistress and be totally blatant about it and not even try to (laughs) deny it or say that it's... You know, he feels bad about it um, because, like, that was the case in Mildred Pierce, too, remember? Oh, like, right. he was like, yeah, I've got a mistress and yeah. I don't have a job, but, like, so what? I'm a man. Yeah. <laughs> so it yeah. could have been more of a thing because I feel like now 
that would reflect poorly on someone in court. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, not in terms of the law, but just in terms of, like, the juror would be like, I don't know about this. Yeah. Or you hope that it would, like, be different now, but... Yeah, who knows? knows? That might be very, like, American and puritanical of me to think. (laughs) (laughs) Wishful thinking. Um, Wait, so can we talk about Kip? Yes. Because I didn't understand, like, at first I was like, alright, he's hitting on her in a very obvious way. No, he's gay. No, he's back to hitting on her. No, he has to be gay. And then in the scene with the gun, he's like, blatantly trying to get her drunk and, like, take advantage of her. Like, that's what we're supposed to think in that scene, right? That he's gonna take advantage of her? Yeah, that yeah. was what I thought. Oh, yeah, I was like, oh, wait, I I was so, uh, yeah, so taken aback and surprised, because I was like, I thought you were her friend. Also, she's your lawyer, so maybe don't mess with her. Also, aren't and, you gay? <laughs> I guess he could have been bi or just like had gender fluidity or i don't know but yeah i guess that's true um, yes i guess this character in an an old hollywood movie was bisexual and was gender fluid i'm sure that was the case (laughs) intentionally (laughs) well he was kind of i thought an asshole for a lot of this movie like he was so mean to spencer tracy's character and just, like, very obviously coming on to Amanda, and she was just like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. So I didn't think that was great either, that there that was, like, a weird dynamic. And I was like, why are they having this guy to a dinner party if he's so mean to one of them? Yeah. Well, they, like, they, he's over for the dinner party, but he's just there to play the piano, and once he starts playing, they close the door. <laughs> I did like his his piano playing and singing, I will say that. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> And his jaunty Cole Porter song. Yes. Um, did you think it was interesting that in that pivotal scene where Spencer Tracy, like, looks up and sees them through the window and then, like, comes up with the licorice gun, and it looks like they're making out, but then she, ne- they, at least on screen, they never show her giving any explanation of, like, no, I didn't actually cheat on you or do you think he knows that she didn't cheat on him or I mean I think it's beside the point because he was just he was just coming to scare her and he figured that he would you know what he knows is that they are friendly and that he like he doesn't really like Kip um and but he knows because he can see the shadow that they're in Kip's apartment right or he knows which apartment they're in so he can go over there I think I mean he had to have like, been planning it, whether or not he thought they were, like, like doing something untoward, because yeah. he had to buy the liquor's gun. It did kind of remind me, like, the way they they sort of made up in the end of how sometimes it does happen in relationships that you have these, like, humongous fights, but, like, neither per- person really wants to break up. Yeah. And, like, at a certain point, people are just like, oh, like, I guess we just need to... Like, move on from this thing. One of us has to start fake crying. Yeah. Although, can I just say that I really took issue with the fake crying. It really bothers me when men say that women do this. Because I have absolutely no control over my tear ducts. I know. Like, 
I cry at times I don't want to cry. I cannot make myself cry at times when I do want to cry. <laughs> and, like, this is, like, a stereotype about women that I do not think is true. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. I I mean, I think in she fake cries at the beginning. Like, well, and, and actually, like, I think... What they're what they're trying to say is that after he slaps her during the massage because he's mad that he is losing this case to her, he slaps her, and she gets like mad. But then, in order at which, like rightly so, because her husband just slapped her, um, <clears throat> then she kind of like pivots to cry. And I guess we're supposed to think that she's fake crying, which I just was <laughs> was like, maybe she's actually crying because her husband just slapped her. And yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I, I just thought that was kind of a cheap, cheap thing to do. And so she fake cries then once, and he fake cries twice. And um, yeah. So which kind of just like proves your point that like <laughs> men are. I don't know if this is actually your point about fake crying, but like women can't control it necessarily, and men are jerks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess when I was watching it, I didn't interpret her as fake crying in that scene. I thought she was real crying. Yeah. I guess that would change the dynamic there. Yeah. I've gotten the impression more that, like, since men are so um, socialized not to cry, Mm -hmm. and it's not something a lot of men do, I mean, I think that's changing now, but especially older generations that, like, they just don't cry. Yeah. (laughs) And... So I got the sense more that they just get disgusted with women crying because they're they, it annoys them that women cry too much because <laughs> they don't cry themselves. Yeah, right. And like their baseline to me, that is themselves. Would, yeah, their baseline is themselves, and they have not been allowed to emote. <laughs> great, works out great for everyone. I even just had a coworker was saying recently in a meeting that like he can't even interpret sadness in himself. Because he has been, like, he was raised to not be allowed to show sadness. He could only say that he was mad. So now when he's, like, angry, he has to be like, am I really angry or am I sad? And I'm just sad. I know. And he's someone, you know, he's, like, not that old, like, in his 30s. And I was like, oh, God, the people are still raising their kids this way. (laughs) That's, like, they can't even identify what they're feeling. That's terrible. Yeah, and now that I'm raising a son, I'm always just like, you cry away. Like, go ahead. <laughs> the tear ducts flow. <laughs> like, it's fu- it's all good. You're going to raise a very emotive and empathetic uh, little boy. I mean, he'll probably be a sissy, but it's, <laughs> That's right. it's okay. That is good. <laughs> we all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Are you ready to talk about social justice? I think so, yeah. Um, did you think this movie had a social justice theme? I think so, just because the... I mean, even though I was saying earlier that I don't think the movie is pro-woman, I think it, it definitely talks about how the legal system in our society views women differently than men and less than men and says, you know, and Amanda Bonner's, you know, says, like, that's wrong. You know, there should be equal rights for women. And that's what she's arguing in the courtroom. Um, what do you think? 
Yeah, I, mean, I, I would say that it does. She's definitely trying to make a larger argument that, like, would affect other cases and maybe affect society. Mm-hmm. I also think, you know, she takes up a case of, like, Doris is definitely someone of a lower class than her mm-hmm. who doesn't have a lot of options. Mm-hmm. And the movie illustrates that. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. What about the Bechdel test? Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, this it's a funny question for this movie because, you know, she talks to Doris a lot, but they're talking about, you know, what happened between her and her husband. Mm-hmm. And she does talk to her secretary, but she's also asking her about women and adultery. But it's for in the, like context of the case it's not like to like say oh you know like oh are you in love with this man or you should be in love with this man or you should marry him or that's true i mean i guess i would say that it does pass because there are a lot of women talking together in the movie she talks to all those witnesses who are just demonstrating Mm -hmm. that they're good at their jobs Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, all those badass women yeah i think it does pass and like even when she talks to those the women about um, relationships, it's not really that the relationships are the focus. It's more about the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. So what rating would you give this movie? The first two thirds get a five. <laughs> <laughs> the last third gets a two. So let's average it out to a four. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds, that's what I was thinking that I was going to give it a four because I, I really liked it. Uh, I would watch it again. Uh, we didn't even talk about the costumes, but Catherine Hepburn's like, like beautiful, like suit lapels. Mm-hmm. I mean, come um. on. <laughs> Um, I mean, even that, like, dressing gown that she's wearing before the, like, dinner party, where I was like, is that a dressing gown or is that her her dress? Because if it's her dress, that looks amazing. That's ridiculous. And then it was just her dressing gown. Their whole lifestyle was so lavish. Like, they when they, they had a dinner party and it was a black tie. <laughs> like, at their house. A black tie dinner party where people just come across from across the hall and then they watch home movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the the lifestyle to which we could aspire. You're accustomed? Yes, that's right, and I'm accustomed. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, yeah, I liked it a lot, just kind of the the ending I wasn't keen on, but I would go back definitely for the dynamic within that marriage in the, the first half of the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, like, speaking of marriage, I think, you know, no matter where it ends, there's a there's a point where Adam says to Amanda as he's, like, moving out his stuff, he's like, you know, what, he says, what is marriage? And it, he says it's a contract. And I think, like, the, the movie is sort of navigating that question. Um, and I think that as a person who is married, I think that's a really fascinating question. Yeah. And it's it explores that idea of, like, standing up for your ideals mm-hmm. within a marriage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sort of where you draw the line of, like, preserving the marriage or being true to your principles. Mm -hmm. And how Um, do you support, like, your partner, you know, in the fights that they want to fight? Yeah. And it, I feel like I could talk for a lot longer about this movie, but it was clear in the, from the beginning that, like, Adam didn't want the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, He wasn't happy to be prosecuting mm-hmm. the, uh, Doris. I mean, that was another thing. I was like, well, he's the assistant district attorney. Like, 
he has to take whatever cases are given to him. Like that's right. <laughs> that's his job. He doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it would have been a better movie if they had just like both chosen the opposite side mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. because of principle. I mean, I guess his principle was like I just stand for the law and don't look at the nuances mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. lives. Wait, did you but say what I'm, your rating was? Yeah. Uh, so I'm gonna just say, also say four. Oh. Which is pretty high for me. Yeah, for you it's pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> I still think my favorite dynamic thus far of Hepburn Tracy is Desk Set mm-hmm. though from last last season, mm-hmm. which was that was such a good movie. <laughs> oh, I've got to go back to that one. Too. This is now a Desk Set appreciation podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Desk Set is up there. It's like Desk Set and all about Eve. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so what's our next movie, Ho? Um, I believe that our next movie is Metropolis. <gasps> oh my gosh. <laughs> I am so excited. <laughs> Get ready. Hey, and also, appropriately dystopian. That's right. For our current circumstances. <laughs> Recording from the middle of the quarantine. Uh-huh. <laughs> Something to look forward to. <laughs> May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.